Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy, here's something Craft sanity, craft sanity, art and craft creativity, interviews with people who make, they are here to help keep you sane. Craft sanity, craft sanity, craft sanity. This is episode 205, and I'm really excited to bring you a conversation with an artist I met recently at Art Prize. Her name is T. Rock Moore. That's not her real name, that's her art name, and she does explain how she got it. I was at Fountain Street Church where T. has her uh, exhibit called Flint on display. When I first saw the piece, the title was not where I could see it, it was off to the side. And I walked into the space and saw a white drinking fountain with dirty water, coming out of it, this kind of continuous stream of brown water under a sign that says colored. I was not alive during the time in our history here in America where these drinking fountains were actually in use. So when I first saw the piece, I was just like, oh, no, like, no, no, no. And it stirred in me like, oh, no, no, no. I I mean, it was upsetting. It was very upsetting to me. But then I made my way to the side of the piece and saw that was called Flint. And I was like, okay, I see what this artist is doing here. She's using a symbol of extreme racism in American history and drawing a parallel from that period in our history of racism to what's happening now in Flint, where three years after the initial problem was, was shared with the public, people are still using bottled water on a daily basis in Flint. And a lot of people don't know that because This was the top story for so many days in a row. And then the, you know, camera crews pack up, people go home and start to forget. And it's important that artists like T are reminding us that this isn't over yet. And also raising questions about why is it taking so long to fix this problem? So um, I, I went across the street from the college where I teach journalism and my students and I looked at the piece and then we had a conversation with T about it. And T really is great at telling her story. So we didn't ask a whole lot of questions. We just let her tell her story. And there's a takeaway here for any of you who feel like you want to comment on what's happening in our society right now, and maybe feeling like you don't want to ruffle feathers, you don't really know how to go about it. I think you'll find this very interesting. So I'm going to get to this conversation with T, who is a New Orleans-based artist who exhibits her work all over the country. She'll be sharing a lot about how she got attention for her work and the mistakes she's made along the way. She's very open about these things. So I think you will appreciate this conversation. And then what I'm going to do, I was out at Art Prize again after this was recorded And I met an artist who has a piece called Home Sweet Home. And I'm going to 
segue after T's talk, we're going to segue into this other Flint-based artwork. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see how artists are making connections during Art Prize, and I really hope their stories will inspire you to do the work you feel compelled in your heart to do. So, okay, without further ado, let's get to that conversation with T. Rockmore. We're really happy today to be able to have a, a live discussion here at T. Rockmore, and I think we'd like to start things off just by having you explain your work a little bit, your current work, and... We obviously just took a look at your art prize piece, and for those at home, they can't see that. So having you describe it in your words, instead of me doing that in my words, I'd like to give you that chance as the artist to kind of get us started with just a little little description. Okay. So everyone saw Flint, and um, Flint took me a year and a half to conceptualize. I knew I wanted to, you probably read this in the article, I wanted to really represent the racial crime that had occurred there and so I really did a lot of intense studying and for about a year and a half and I woke up one morning and had it. So it is a water fountain that is painted pure white representing many things mainly white supremacy and it is a fountain running constantly obviously rusty colored water with a colored sign from the Jim Crow era above it. It speaks loudly because it's simple and it encompasses about everything there is to say about that, about the water crisis in Flint. I've done two bodies of work in my artistic career, um, one about three years ago and one over the last year. My work has become much more nuanced and symbolic in its presentation, which not only serves the work better, but it also serves the audience better so that they can be more um, reflective. And um, so Flint was part of my second body, and it was completed last November after I said a year and a half of conceptualizing, about eight weeks of producing it, because I had to turn a water fountain which is a water cooler, into a real fountain. And so I had to create all of the innards to do that, to make this thing run constantly. And then it was presented at Art Basel last December, as you know, and, bef- and I was very fortunate because before Art Basel even opened, one of the top collectors in the world came in with the people that take care of her, surrounding her, and she walked into the venue we were in, a large venue, and directly to Flint, and spoke with the owner of the gallery that represents me, Jonathan Ferrar Gallery. Two minutes later, she walked out, and he came to me, he said, do you know who that is? And I, and I did not know, and he said that was Beth Rudin DeWoody, one of the uh, largest collectors in the world, and... It, it made him very proud, makes me very proud. She has allowed us to keep Flint. I had a solo exhibition called A Burning House last month, and she allowed us to keep Flint because Flint was made for this exhibition. So that's a purchase piece then? It's a purchase piece. But she is the type of collector, these big collectors loan out their work. So she's basically loaning it out. 
and it was really really critical for me to get it to Michigan and art prize was the perfect thing to present Flint not only to Michigan but to the world from Michigan so I've done four interviews in the last 24 hours and I say that because I've done the New York Times and I've done NBC and but the most important was the Flint Journal called me and so I feel really honored by that because this piece is in solidarity with the people of Flint hopefully it will get there and be seen there and of course if there's any money made at Art Prize a large percentage of that will go to Flint which is part of what I do with my work. I'm not, certainly not in support of the white savior complex, but I'm, al I'm also very sensitive to the fact that I'm a white artist working in the uh, realm that I do. And so I always help either other artists or, or some organization either having to do specifically with the subject matter or in the location I happen to be in at that time. So if I can interject for a second, did the sale of the Flint piece, did some of the proceeds go to some place or did you, did you get paid already or wait till you give it to the artist? You know, it's not something I like to discuss because it's been sold to an individual. Okay. I, I would, pr I prefer to do that off tape because okay. it's, it's interesting okay. what, what went on with that. And you have to understand, like I was saying to Jennifer yesterday, the trajectory of my career has been steep and intense and wonderful. But there are a couple of things with protests slash political art. People really love to come and see it. You got something out of seeing Flint. I don't know what it was, but there was something everyone took from that. But it's hard for people to consider to buy protest art to put in their home. It's a very difficult, difficult financial road to be on, but as an activist, that's not why I'm on that road. And so when Flint was sold, the value was not where it is today. I will say to you that what did come from that did not cover the cost of making it. I see. Okay. Okay? The, didn't cover the production. But that's part of what we do, right, as artists. And, and it, we don't do it for the money. Um, we can't, especially if you're like m me and art is just a manifestation of my activism. So... I, I'm really not in it for the money. I'm in it so that uh, my work can speak to the general public, and um, that's what that's about. Okay, so why don't we open it up to some questions here. So does anyone have, uh, do you want to, Jakari, since you're the closest to me, do you want to start with, do you have a question? Do you want to jump in with a question? What was your motivation to get into art? Good question. Both of my parents were artists. I had no interest in becoming an artist whatsoever. Um, my motivation for doing the type of activism that I've done since Hurricane Katrina um, was Hurricane Katrina. That was, that was the motivation to become an activist dealing with the oppression of people of color in this country. I fell into the art world. 
I was making signs to do protest marches. And I had just come back from Washington, D.C., where I'd done a march, just walking along with everyone else, but with a sign that I wanted it to speak as loudly as it could to the people who were the onlookers. So when I came home, a friend of mine said to me, you know, your signs are really art. And what are you making your signs out of? Pretty much uh, uh, everything. Just like I make my art out of everything. I'm One of the things about being an artist who began making art at 55, right, is I did not go to school for art. Both of my parents were artists, so they freed up my mind about art. They, they basically, I grew up in a world where everyone's an artist. Everyone in this room is an artist. It's just if you have the passion to go there or if you allow yourself to go there. So anyone can make art. With age, you gather a lot of information. I want to let you know. I have a love of architecture. I have a love of fashion. I have a love of art. I have a love of uh, Ballet. I mean, I have a love for a lot of really beautiful things. And you assimilate those things over the years. And your eye really gets quite developed. So it's a, a lot easier, I believe, being an artist at my age, starting to make art, than it is when you're your age. Things become much easier visually, and also you don't become more opinionated, but you feel more confident in your opinions. The question was, so I went ahead and I showed the signs I was making to my friends at a cocktail party like five days later. And then, so this was 38 months ago, a little over three years ago. But my friend said to me, I'm going to, do you want me to tell this story about my name and all of that? Yeah. 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 So uh, this, my best friend from childhood said to me, look, I'm going to write up a little something for the people who come to the cocktail party about your signs and your art and what you're interested in and why you do, why you're such um, a passionate activist. And I said, great. I said, but if we're going to do this, I want an artist's name. And I told her I wanted, there was an artist in New Orleans named Noel Rockmore, and I wanted to be called Noel Rockmore. She disagreed and said that was not possible. And we came up with the name Little Rockmore. And then immediately, and this all happened within two or three minutes, she said T. Rockmore. In New Orleans, there's a lot of French, right? T is short for petite. So, there are a lot of T's around, um, and T is just little or junior or the second, right? You don't use the second or junior in New Orleans. You use T. So at this cocktail party, people said to me, you know, you need to, like, take this up a notch or two and try to get some of these things into museums. And you're still talking about the signs. The signs, right, and I'm t the motivation behind it. And so I took one of the pieces, and it was based on the industrial prison complex, and it was a, a photograph of a black man. And this is not the kind of work I would do now because it is not appropriate for me to do this work. I have evolved, and through a lot of examination, interrogation of my privilege and fragility over the last three years, so 
I've made mistakes in public, and that's okay to do too, everybody. You live through it, and you learn from it, and you evolve. So I made the sign, and it was a photograph, an eight-foot photograph of a black man, one of my best friends, young man, and he's just standing there in his regular clothes. And what I did was I mounted it on a piece of foam board, and then I took PVC pipe, and I covered it with covered those with dollar bills, and I mounted those PVC pipes covered in dollar bills all eight feet down to create bars. And so this was this man standing behind money bars, and that was that was one of my signs in the marches, but it was much more primitive. And then I took that piece and made the eight foot tall piece, and. Five weeks later, I had won Bombay Sapphire Artisan Series with it. I had um, been asked to be in a couple of museums, the Ogden Museum, Contemporary Arts Museum. And that, so it, I fell into it. It's a long answer, but I think what I'm trying to say to you is, and I fell into it because it is, it was meant to be. This is who I am. And I didn't find out until I was 55. So follow your heart. Follow your heart. And that's the point. I want you to follow your heart. And follow your passion because that's what's going to fulfill you in life. And this work completely fulfills me. So I continue to make art because that water fountain speaks a whole lot louder than me walking down the street with a sign for three hours. Right? It lives on, number one, and it just speaks. I did read your bio on your website. Okay. And uh, you had, um, there, I understand that you went to the New Orleans uh, Center for Creative Arts. I did. So you kind of, is that where you, were you trained as, as an artist, or did you study dance there? Because I know you had a background as a dancer. Yes, I studied dance. Okay, that was my of, first. What type of dance did you do? At NOCA, at New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, we, um, we're forced to study every type of dance, oh, from okay. character jazz, classic, classical ballet. Um, it, I went to this performing arts high school in New Orleans. I went there the first year it opened. We were just a bunch of kids. We were all trained classically uh, because we were taught that if you were trained classically, you could do in any art form, music, dance, uh, visual arts, drama that you could do anything if you could train yourself in the classic form. So the bottom line is, in my class was Wynton Marcellus, uh, whose father taught there. I mean, the, some of the biggest art people in the world right now, there were only 17 of us that graduated, um, and that, that came from that first year. But what I knew and what I learned there, and I think probably what y'all are learning here, because y'all all want to go into journalism, correct? Some of them. Yeah? Yeah, this is a class anyone can take. So oh, okay, cool. To be a cool. What I learned was what passion was for, the, for an art form. And I don't know if anybody in here is specifically an artist for studies in art, um, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, 
when I say passion. And if you feel it once, you want it again. And I found it again. So, but in between, there was nothing. So, <laughs> I, I did read, and we're only going to have you tell the parts of your story you want to tell. Yeah. First, but I did see a reference to dentistry. <coughs> yeah, I was involved in dentistry so for a while. Were you a yeah. Or did you I just was involved in dentistry, and it about sucked me my soul dry because you know what I did, what what Mama and Daddy wanted me to do, you know, at, to go out and do the practical thing, and it was the biggest mistake of my life. Now, I'm going to be real with y'all because I'm trying to lead you down the path of passion and fulfillment, right? And not down the path of what probably your parents are doing, practicality. And, (laughs) but um, there are some of us that cannot survive on practicality, especially if you're born to be creative in any form so so it's interesting you said your parents were artists my parents have a more practical yeah they either wanted me to or I wanted to because that life was just too crazy for me but you know as a child you know you you know you do complete do not want completely don't want to do what your parents do right you know so Okay, so does that <coughs> move on to another question? Does anybody else have My name's Carson, and uh, I noticed that there's a little card on your artist statement that has something to do with them winning an award from the ACLU, and I was wondering if you could explain what that is and um, how, why they gave it to you. I was really surprised because they told me they were having a party here last Monday night, so I just took my time and I showed up for the party, and... There was a, that whole big room up there full of people, and when I walked in the room, they said, the recipient is here. The ACLU of Michigan, not of Grand Rapids, or came in and gave an award to me for Flint. They do that every year at this church. You know, this church does quite controversial art compared to most um, because it's so, so it's skewed much more toward the liberal side and but the ACLU of Michigan has just sued some part of the government structure because of the Flint crisis and it and it's ongoing you know you y'all do know Flint the, the water crisis is still ongoing it began what I think April 24th, 2014 or something. And um, so, yes, the ACLU just sued them, and I was very, very honored to get that award. Uh, It's amazing. Um, Well, you've received awards for your work. You've also received quite a bit of criticism as well. Absolutely. And so I think it would be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about how you handle that, because a lot of times people... You know, I did ask the class, you know, um, I didn't tell them your race mm-hmm. before I put the image up. You know, mm-hmm. so prepped. Um, and there's, you know, I think we're, before people see you, what do people assume about you when they see, before they see you, if they see your work? One of, my, one of my dear friends of, that I met about three years ago, who um, is a, a very 26-year-old young African-American man, saw my art. Mm-hmm. And he happened to collaborate with me on a piece in my last exhibit where he said in an interview, you know, when I saw T's art for the first time, I thought she was a dope-ass black woman. (laughs) And um, (laughs) so, uh, but most people think I'm a dope-ass black man. 
but um, he <laughs> thought I was a no-bass black woman. So um, I hope that does not offend anyone, me saying that. Um, I'm, but that's life. So, yes, you know, you have to be, particularly when you're an activist, you have to be prepared to walk through the fire. When you stand up in a crowd, you are going to be the target of someone. And you just have to be prepared to do that. If you have a firm belief in something and you are going to fight against oppressive systems in this country that is founded on, um, is rooted in white supremacy, and you know that, you have got to stand up and, and speak. I mean, it is, as far as I'm concerned, our duties as human beings. When I was an activist, I heard the rabbit comments walking down the street. When I began doing art, it was all kind of pretty and, you know, museums and galleries and... But it is, as I said, it is a very, very sensitive road to tread down as a white artist dealing in the subject matter that I am. And I have had my target is a white audience because I cannot as a Basically, as you all know at this point, I'm a white artist dealing in whiteness. My work is about whiteness. When I started doing this three years ago, let's just put it this way, three years later, the conversation is opening up. People are starting to look at some of us, or me, <laughs> it's the only white artist I know, the white, a white artist doing this, and saying it's time to allow white artists deal with whiteness. But there's a big split in the contemporary art world about this. And this was reflected recently with a woman who did an oil painting of Emmett Till, and she was in the Whitney Biennial. And they asked her to speak about it. And unfortunately, she did not, she was not coming from the place of activism. She was, she was, oh, well, I really identified with his mother, and how the hell can she identify with his mother? She was this white woman, and she has children. She's a mother, but she can't identify in any way. So what she did was, it, it's hard. That kind of situation makes it hard for people like me, although, I have made mistakes. It's very interesting, and y'all should know this as journalists, I've done about 450 interviews in my three years, and that, and all internationally. It's all over the gamut. That is because I did a piece that, in retrospect, I should not have done. I overstepped my boundaries as a white artist. And I take responsibility for that. But I, like I said, you know, it's the beauty of making mistakes is learning. And what I did was I picked myself up and I walked through the fire and I really, really took another good look at my privilege and my white fragility and had to evolve. Now, I have a lot of help from uh, art, artists, critics, and intellects of color. 
that work with me to keep me you know I you have to I have to be able to express but I have to also learn because I can only do my work through a learned experience not a lived experience despite I can interrupt for yeah. just a second um, you were referring to a piece you made that was a mistake can you, yeah. can you make sure we're on the same page about what piece you're okay to? so that was a piece I made within my first year of making art and it was called Angelitos Negros Angelitos Negros was a song that Eartha Kitt recorded back in the early 60s Little Black Angels it's that is the um, translation and basically it was a a music video which they didn't make then but it was of her head and she was singing and it's basically a American black power ballad and calling out all of history for only showing white angels right this is again we're back to taking down confederate monuments all who do we memorialize European men typically right uh, I went ahead and I had a 12 foot by 12 foot audio visual piece of Eartha Kitt singing this and crying and calling out you know where are black where are black angels and it's quite beautiful okay I'm gonna try to get through this quickly and you know I want you to know that from a human a human being standpoint there is some post-trauma with me from that event due to the press okay it was that was the worst part of it the criticism was cool but I have to say the part of the press comes in well I'll tell you about that one time so anyway the only thing I could match the force of this uh, video with that I could think of was Michael Brown an image uh, recreating Michael Brown before I did this I talked to a lot of critics and uh, curators and I told everyone that I was going to be getting in touch with his family first so I wrote a letter to the Michael Brown Foundation and asked permission to do this this piece was not for sale it was never going to be for sale and I wanted to point out white terror right this is what white terror does to a community I got a phone call from Leslie McSpadden this is Michael Brown's mom like five days later and she not only thanked me for doing wanting to do this piece she asked if I did it that I would make sure I would take it all over the country and then she said and the last thing I would like to ask you is may I be at the gallery when it comes to the gallery and at the party and talk to the people you know she wanted to come to the opening and speak oh my god you know it's just of course so we had the opening at the gallery now this piece was so 
powerful. 99.9% of people I know and don't know, black and white, think the piece uh, was powerful and was also beautiful. But there were two entities on, the op on very extreme ends of the polls that wanted it censored. The, that wasn't the word they were using, but they were they wanted it down. And one poll was tended to be young black activists that called me out, rightly so, for revictimizing. They called me out for appropriating that that was not part of it, but basically revictimizing and wanted it taken down. I was showing in a venue that was owned by African-American people in the south side of Chicago, in Bronzeville, right? And they weren't going to censor it, but, <laughs> but for every young black activist who wanted it taken down, what they didn't know was I had a thousand white supremacists that wanted it taken down who were calling us with death threats, who were calling Andre and Francis Guichard in the middle of the night and screaming, repeating, you know, um, racial epithets. And um, people who bought pieces, there's a man named Father Flager who bought a piece, and he got a death threat for buying a piece at the gallery. Um, so the white supremacists were down our throats, screaming, you're making a hero of this kid. You're making a hero of this kid. This kid's, yeah. But, and then I had, like I said, for every thousand of those guys, I had one young African-American person saying, you're re-victimizing, take it down. What they didn't know was they were asking for the same thing. And that typically happens when there's a big controversy. One side is not aware of the other side. The person I was not going to please were the white supremacists. And they far outnumbered the activists on the left who were very vocal through social media. So uh, let me just say to you, in retrospect, what I did wrong was this. I recreated a subject who was already a victim through my whiteness, completely, absolutely inappropriate. It perpetuates the cycle of slavery. You cannot do that as a white artist. There is a very, very fine line. So I would not do it again. Uh, it was, but it, you know, you can't take it away. Andre and Francis Guichard, a gallery Guichard in Brownsville, who are now my best friends because we lived through hell together, they were not going to censor and they lived through this. Their building was threatened, their lives were threatened, their everything, you know, and the nonsense was crazy because not one of the people who were calling us out had come to the gallery. This was all through a photo of the image of Michael Brown. Nobody called this Angelitos Negros. They called it the Michael Brown sculpture, the white artist who did the Michael Brown sculpture. So 
I have a friend. Now, what I want you to know is whenever you do political art, there is always controversy in any exhibit. I had a dear friend who was in the Whitney Biennial in 1993, and um, a white woman who was asked to be part of a political exhibition. She no longer, she quit. She does environmental art. I called her when I came back from Chicago, and I said, I can't, what do I do? What's, and she just, she said, I suggest you quit doing what you're doing. I said, I can't, I'll never quit. I'm, I'm not gonna quit. And she said, then you, you know, pick yourself up and you walk through the fire. And I did, and, but I learned, right? And it's part of life, you know, particularly when you're making big statements. And I am making a big, fat statement about white supremacy. And I'm in people's faces, but now what I tend to do is deride and dismantle white supremacy in my work. Therefore, Flint, right? The beauty of Flint, it was never about T-Rock Moore. It was about Flint. It went viral on all social medias because it was about the peace. It wasn't about me. It, the peace superseded the maker. And in anything you do, you want to do it well enough so that the creator of it is not the important thing. The product is the important thing, right? And Flint is one of those special pieces. So now let me tell you all about the press uh, that, and the journalists that, and what I learned with that whole thing. We became bombarded with press. And the press was as vicious, and the press was trying, you know, they were trying to be, they were being cool, they were going to hang with one side. They didn't care that the white supremacists were after, because it didn't make a big news story at the time. But what they were doing was they completely, completely tore us to shreds, despite, um, despite any, anything that we had to say. It was just, it was... And I mean, for instance, let me give you an example. Let me just ask you one thing. If you do become journalist, be kind. Get your information. But remember, typically you're not dealing with criminals. You're dealing with human beings. And the trauma that when people are saying, what's this and how did... And how, and then even if you spend hours writing and explaining, the article will come out and what they, the manipulation of through the press, manipulate kindness and then, you know, it's, I can't even explain it. Are these in the form of columns or news stories? Were they critical reviews or... No, news no, they're news mainly news stories. Okay, so, mainly. Someone, so someone would come and interview you and then and you would think it was a pleasant conversation and then it would come out and it would be... Oh, it would but. be... And it started, the controversy really started the night of the opening. Before, and here's how it... Let me, I'm just going to put it to you guys. It's pre-opening. Nothing's gone, gone down. And a white woman from Fox News, from local Fox News in Chicago, comes in. 
and it's like oh and 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 and, and I mean she turned around that night on the nightly news and basically called <laughs> she, uh, she called um, what she did was she created a scene with a white woman making bad art and putting dead bodies on the ground and and she riled up everyone in Leslie McSpadden's community so that Leslie McSpadden was getting it too because she had come. How dare they do this to this woman, right? So she comes and she's doing her thing and she tries, she steps up and is like, back off everybody. This is my son. I've given permission. I'm not, but believe me, there's no excuse. I should not have done it, right? But then Fox News comes in and what I didn't realize was Mr. Brown was not there and word did not get to him. It got to him through Fox News. They showed up at his door. So you see, it can be quite, it, I try to have integrity and humanity in your work. Um, it is always, always important, and the product will always be better. Try to have integrity and humanity in everything you do. Because I said to Jennifer yesterday, I have a little bit of a hard time talking in public. And I decided last night, I'm going to give you guys everything. Whatever you want, I'm going to put it on the table. But I have a hard time, and I feel very relaxed with you. I'm shocked. But I have a hard time because there is some serious post-trauma from that week. And um, it all worked out. I'm a better artist. My work is better because of it. But um, just be, be kind. Get the information you can. But understand there's a human being behind your, your, your people you're dealing with in everything you do. You know, basically, just treat everybody the way you'd like to be treated. You have a job to do, you want to do it well, but there's no need for abuse, you know. I'm curious about where that line is for you now, because you're saying you wouldn't do a piece like that again. Okay, your so... Work is still pretty controversial. Right, well, it's... It's... My work, I think the controversy that surrounds my work are remnants of that time. People still look, they'll Google me or whatever, and they'll see that. There's also a lot of misunderstanding, too, with the fact that here I have, I've been working for three years, and look where I am, right? Part of the reason I am where I am, it, well, all of the reason is I went through that controversy. It made me... <coughs> That was like 20 years of school that I never had like that. You know, it's like, okay, you got to get, you got to, so, but it was also, people don't understand. They're like, how, you know, there's jealousy everywhere, right? I just want to let you know, in the art world, in the, in real life, that, you, and that's another thing. You don't ever have to, um, you always want to hold everybody up around you. 
and so my work is controversial because I'm a white woman and a lot of people do not see this as a white artist working in whiteness. People interpret art very, very differently and you're going to have every imaginable everything. Every, anytime you do anything, there are going to be people who like you or don't like you or agree or disagree. And, and it's very sensitive what I'm doing, but let me just ask y'all one question. Who has the right to speak when the subject matter is racism? I mean, who has the authority to speak, indeed critique, the subject matter of racism in this country? There are two actors, two groups, right? The protagonist and the antagonist. The perpetrator and the victim. Us, them. Black, white, typically. There are two groups. As a member of the perpetrating group, I am standing up and I am speaking out. And I will continue to, despite what anybody thinks despite what the controversies are. This is, I know where I come from in the depth of my heart. I am a white person who has to learn because I haven't lived, right. I can't live, I, I, have, I have the privilege of this, the unearned advantage of this skin, right? So, I have to learn in order to see the oppressions that I have perpetrated on another group of people. I say I collectively, but that is indeed what this is about. Collective, this is about collective awareness, our collective selves, you know, we're in a real paradigm shift and we can't only deal with our individual selves anymore. We must start to deal with our collective selves or we're gonna all, I mean, it, we just can't allow what's going on to go on. Speak up, be brave, be courageous. You're going to get slapped down. Stand up, keep walking, walk through the fire, fight, work hard, do the best you can with everything. Admit when you make a mistake, big freaking deal, you know, and move on. And so, I, I, yes, my work is controversial because I'm standing up in a crowd and I am calling out this country for 400 years of oppression, dehumanization, um, and creating several iterations of slavery that a group of people are still having to live in because of the systems and institutions we create to uphold white supremacy, to uphold the white male, to keep the white man in power. It, that is what this country, now I'm sorry I'm carrying on, but that is what this country is rooted in. That is what the laws and the systems and institutions are based in, to keep the white man in power. That does not make the white man in here, that's not calling out, that, that is, just our history and if you can study and intellectually and critically look at our history then you can kind of get it 
and you realize what we need to fix are these very seriously complex series of um, institutions, uh, systems, regulations that keep one group of people in power. And that's it. So that's my, that's my life. I will always be controversial. <coughs> Why? Because I'm an opinionated kind of thing, you know, and I'm going to speak. But darn, you know, um, you know, who is responsible for her group? Who, you know, I have to just ask <coughs> that. Well, there's a lot of passive activism going on in our country. Thank you. She's great. Someone posts something, and you can be like thumbs up to that, but we're not actually doing it. And then you go back to doing your homework or you go grocery shopping, you know, and nothing really changes. So it's interesting. One of the observations I'm making about the piece in there is that you are using an image, something people actually saw in this country back what six in 1960s. Mm -hmm. This was a standard thing. I came along in the 70s, so mm -hmm. I don't have any firsthand experience with this. And then you're depicting, it's a commentary on Flint, something that just happened like three years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of time between the 1960s and 2014. Mm -hmm. You're coming in and commenting on this, um, using imagery that still really ignites people, um, mm -hmm. forces them to confront some, some ugly truths about American history, some of it still happening. What is it going to take, and how many more artists do you think they're going to have to join? Uh, in with you to just kind of keep putting these images in front of people. What is it going to take to actually get us to a point where we're officially healing our nation and, and making some changes? My name is Xavion. Um, I don't think our country will ever like officially heal. I think what, racism will always be there. So like that's not something that can be healed to be honest. So that's just something I want to say. There are people that can shift. I hear you on that. In our lifetimes, it's not going to happen. But if we can start talking about our collective selves and not our individual selves and, the, and, and start taking accountability and start dismantling white supremacy, eventually eventually we will be a more collective nation. But I hear you, babe, I mean, loud and clear. And in our lifetimes, it isn't going to happen. But it is our duty, because we are in a paradigm shift right now, and we have been for a couple of years, that is very, very similar to the civil rights era. You know, after the civil rights era, we kind of, we became complacent. And here we are again. And um, it's not, we've never left it. I mean, it's all, white supremacy has always been there. I, unfortunately, the last few months, it, the this, you know, bloated monster has re-shown himself, you know, I mean, the bloated, ugly monster of racism has really shown itself. But in a way, that's very good, you know, because it was there. 
people said to me three years ago, my white friends, my passive liberal white friends, said to me, why are you even doing this work? You know, this is like of the past. And I'm like, y'all are freaking blinded. You're blinded by your own entitlement. You call yourself liberal, but you're blinded by your entitlement, which is racism. And here we are, and it's obvious. But in the, the another thing I'd like to point out uh, while I'm on my soapbox up here is we've got a new type of white supremacy, right? The aggrieved, it's called, in my this is my thing, aggrieved whiteness. It is where the white man claims he is a victim, right? I've fallen onto hard times and poor. You know what, damn, so why can't white people fall on hard times? Why all of a sudden is it about the man who's been forgotten and the white man who's been forgotten? Please, you know, um, get real. So this is the new white supremacy. The this is who people are calling out now as the man who has been forgotten. That's baloney, right? And um, aggrieved whiteness, the new white supremacy. So um, anyway. I hear you loud and clear, but there will always be people that will, will fight to make things better. You've got, we've got to, and we've got to fight collectively, right? I mean, it's, it's so important. The other day I had um, my nephews, I was over at my sister's house, and um, they have the, the neighbor is Caucasian, so their son called one of my uh, nephews the N-word. And so we had to have a sit down with his mom as a group and tell, like, where did he get that from? Because I know my nephews, they're not talking like that. And if they are, if they would, it would be the A at the end. So what I, from what I hear, he added the ER. So you got to be hearing that somewhere else. So it's getting passed down to children. It's just going to keep, it's like a snowball, basically. But you have that sit-down match. That yeah. changes things. Right. You can stop That's it right beautiful. there. Yeah. Sit-down changes it. You know, there is no such thing. I mean, the, the white man has no right to ever, the, the word, I don't even like using what people use now in place of that, the N-word. I don't even like using that. It's the, the, because the white man created that entity. That is a false entity. There is no such what, you know, the, but we had to do that. Right? You have to read James Baldwin and what he says about that. And so remember that name, James Baldwin, okay? And and write what he says, how how that word, because it's all it is is a word, was created because there's certainly not a human being that fits in that category. So um and then also read about what James Baldwin said, the white man will never be free. Right? How, we can never be free until we take accountability and free the people that we enslaved 400 years ago. And one last thing. The only, this deal about everybody's an immigrant, that's another bag of baloney, correct, right? Not everybody's an immigrant. Everybody's an immigrant unless you were forced into this country on a ship over the ocean, stolen from your land. 
that's not an immigrant, you know? So we've got to be careful with the, every word we hear and every word we use, especially in, in journalism, right? Um, but when we hear, you keep hearing white men in politics say, everybody is an immigrant, you know? It's like, not only is it wrong and inaccurate, how dare you be so insensitive to show your white supremacy and proudly? So, anyway, that's, you're right about that, but we're gonna work, okay? We're gonna work, and and we've there have and there have been white people that have worked for this for 400 years. They were called abolitionists, and let me say, if you read the history of abolitionists, those were white people that fought for uh, enslaved people to be freed. Right? The abolitionists were hated. They were loved by many, but there were two groups that hated him. There was a small group of African-American people that hated him, and a much larger group of white people that hated him. Standing up in a crowd, you're always gonna be called out. And it goes right back to, so, sorry I'm carrying on so much, but I, I want you to know passion Go for it. Do everything to the best of your ability. My name is Samantha, and the only question I had is, after what you know now about the piece that you did in Chicago, yes. would you do it again? Absolutely not. It, I would not, if, even if I knew the advantages that came from that, you see, in the art world, controversies, even controversy is good, right? Andy Warhol used to say it wasn't what was said. He, he didn't read what was said, he measured. He would measure how many lines were written about him. That's, that's how, so despite where it put me, people knowing me, I would never ever do that again. I was wrong, I was wrong, I was completely wrong. Now I have friends, you know, white and black who say you weren't wrong. I was wrong. So you asked me where the line is, okay? Here, here's my line. My problem was I recreated a subject that was a victim. I recreated a subject that had no agency. My line is, my personal line, and people will agree or disagree, is I can work with my friends and uh, collaborate and uh, do whatever I want to do as long as everyone has 100% agency that is part of that. That way I'm not perpetuating the cycle of slavery. So no, I made a terrible mistake, but I made it in public. I take, yep, full accountability, I did it but I'm going to keep going. Um, for the benefit of the, my listeners who are art, a lot of them are artists, um, I'm curious about if you have, looking back, I know you've obviously learned a lot in the last three years mm -hmm. about art and, and the, the price you pay personally when you make art that sometimes makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, what advice do you have to other artists out there who feel like they want to comment? Maybe they're passively 
they're more passive activists right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're you know knitting their hat and going to a march in Washington, mm -hmm. or hitting like on a post that some like right on mm -hmm. what their friend said. What advice do you have for people that want to get out there but they're worried about how the world's going to receive them on both sides, like mm -hmm. of an issue? Mm -hmm. You know, two things. Number one, study, study, read. Make sure you have your information, right? Make sure you get all of the connections. If you want to step out and want to be an activist, understand why something is ha understand why Flint is happening today and how Flint is associated not only with the 60s but with 400 years ago. So understand that. And the second thing I tell you, any person who wants to step out or is this kind of holding back, it is your duty to step up. You must step up. If you are an artist, it is your duty to speak. It is your duty to create outrage because outrage creates shift. And the only way that you can tear down the status quo is to disrupt. And disrupt is a very, very important word. It was, it's been used by civil rights um, organizations and leaders for decades. Disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. And even the chaos I created with Angelitos Negros, that disruption created a shift in the status quo, a big shift. So don't be afraid. We're all, again, we're human beings. Allow humans to make mistakes, right? Allow yourself, forgive yourself, you're human. And forgive your brothers and sisters. They are human too. Forgive the person you're interviewing, interviewing when you're doing your journalism job. It is not your place to judge. It is your place to gather information, but not to um, attack, right? These are all just important things, but you must, as an artist, step up and um, and speak and speak and speak loudly and disrupt and stand up in the crowd and know you're going to get hit. You're going to be the, you, okay? Don't be frightened. It's easy for me to say that at 58 years old to you. But I can promise you there isn't anything to be scared of. There really isn't. Um, it's just a bunch of just a bunch of words and the volume has gotten louder with social media. Social media is really nonsense because people are so passive-aggressive. If you want to say something, if you want to tell me that I did wrong with Angelitos Negros, come to my face and tell me, please. You know, it is, it's my duty to teach people and it is people's duty to teach Tell me to my damn face. You know, social media is very, very, it's wonderful if you're trying to, I'm trying to get everybody to know Flint is here right now, but I'm not hurting anybody with that. But, you know, I get, I, I get posts through my website all the time. Like yesterday, I opened up my email and I got a post through my website. Some guy, Neil, somebody said, your art's trash. 
okay. I mean, it's almost funny. Like this, um, it's like, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, your art's trash. Yeah, It's like, whatever, you know? I mean, it's so stupid. It's, it's just dumb. And it shows people's lack of, I don't know what, but it's not very smart. So be strong, be forthright, have integrity, have humility, humanity, spare your brothers and sisters pain, and ask them to spare you pain. It is really important in this world. And fight for each other, right? Fight for the rights. But you have to understand, until you start studying and really understanding the connections through history, you can't really understand the oppressions of, of today because they are so disgustingly similar to one another. Well, thank you so much for the time that you spent with us. We will be working on some stories, and I'll get you some links sent back. Um, and I'm glad that you did bring up some of the parallels. There's a, a very interesting parallel between art and artists and that duty to speak up, and then journalists and our duty to set aside judgment and report the facts and let the people decide you know, how they feel about something. And then we hope those readers would, instead of making a terrible post at the end of our story, would get in contact with the artist directly and, mm -hmm. and let them know how they feel about it. But it's an um, interesting time that we live in here. And uh, thank you for just taking time out of your art prize visit to Grand Rapids. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. A special thanks to T for sharing her story. I really do appreciate the time she took out of her day to meet with my students and I and have that conversation. Uh, now I'm going to bring you a short clip from an artist who is living in this abandoned house in Grand Rapids for three weeks and using only bottled water. So for the whole duration of Art Prize, he is spending time in this space, living there and using the resources that the folks in Flint are using, which is bottled water. So this is a piece that's a salute to all his family and friends in Flint, Michigan. It's where he's from. And he is inviting the public to come in and talk to him. And he's also showing a documentary. It's a film that he made to just document what is happening. And he it's conversations with people who are affected by the ongoing water crisis. So let's have a listen to what is motivating this young man to dedicate time and energy to raising awareness. My name is Keon Lovett. I am from Flint, Michigan originally. I live here now in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I am 27 years old and my art prize project is called Home Sweet Home. Okay, and so you're living in this house that is abandoned. Yes. And you're, you're doing this to demonstrate Give people a little taste of what the folks yeah. in Flint have been dealing with for three years now. Yep. Um, for my time, I've been finding it hard to really be an advocate through Facebook and um, word of mouth about the water crisis. Um, I found out that if people don't necessarily live in the situation, it doesn't matter to them. Mm -hmm. So I decided for Art Prize to bring the situation to them. Um, so um, I am living in this space for three weeks, only using bottled water to do my, my daily activities of washing, cleaning, and cooking. 
And um, I have a documentary that I've been showing, um, detailing stories of my family members and community leaders and those who are struggling through the water crisis. Now, if people aren't able to get here to see the video, to see your documentary, can you see it anywhere online? Is it available anywhere or are you distributing yeah, it? Um, my film director, um, Marcus Thomas, he has a company, All Marcus Productions. Um, it will be streaming through his website and Vimo. Um, okay. So, um, as we continue to put information out and put out media, um, he's going to be copying it on his personal website okay. and Vimo. And yeah. have that be available. And yep. again, the name of your documentary? Home Sweet Home. Okay, everything's the same name. Yep. Okay. Okay. And so, um, how are people responding to your entry, Enterprise? What are um, they saying? They can't believe, first of all, that I'm staying the night at an abandoned house. That's the first reaction. Um, the second reaction is uh, the water crisis is still going on. And so it's it's proving my point that people do not know that it's still happening because right. of the, the lack of media presence, um, the lack of media responsibility to actually report news and not... Um, you know, silly articles about Trump texting Steph Curry or whatever. Right, and he's tweeting and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so people are focused on things that are not yeah. really that important when you think about the fact that people are still struggling to get through a day in Flint. Yeah. So uh, I know they were trying to replace piece, like the pipe two houses, but that's such a slow process. Do yeah. you know anyone that's actually had that done? I don't personally know. Um, and your whole family's in Flint. Like, yeah. you know, you grew up there, you... Yeah. Did you go to high school um, there and everything? I did. Graduated from Flint North And you don't know school. a single person who's had their water situation remedy? I can't say I do. I do know that there have been contractors, you know, scheduled to go out there and do some yard work and assess the situation. Right. But that's as much as it has, for, has gotten. Um, nothing that I know of has really been actively done. I do know there is an issue that uh, for the city pipes to be... Um, Restored, but homeowners have to restore their own pipe leading from the house to the city line. And most people don't know how to do that. That, or they don't have the money for it. So, so you did get a chance to meet with uh, T. Rockmore. Yes. And you'd already heard about her work. It sounds like. Yep. Okay. So, what do you think about her piece that she has over in the uh, on, is it her art prize entry? I think it's amazing. Um, I like that it breaks the racial barrier um, because of the age of the water fountain. And the setting that it's in, and the things right. around it, the cultural, the cultural stereotypes for it, um, it's relative to Flint, Michigan, with the actual water spewing out of the fountain itself. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, when I seen it on my Instagram in October at Art Basel, it inspired me. Um, like, okay, there's a, there there are other people talking about this, and this isn't just a thing that I'm interested in, and you know. So, um, I was really lucky. Uh, I thank God that we we, we met. So. Yeah, and. And I know that she has really focused the last three years doing a lot of artwork that is about racism. Yeah. And um, and sometimes people are pushing back and saying, wait, you're a white woman. What do yeah. you have to say about, you know, what right do you have? But it sounds like you respect her work and you yeah. you totally... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, it's, it's not about whether she's white or black, whether or not I'm white or black. It's about right. human rights. You know right. what I'm saying? So we have families, single parent families, multiple families like that are without the, the the natural need of water. You know what I'm saying? These, these are issues that um, we try to fix in Africa and other third world countries. Um, not saying that Africa's a third world country, but other third world countries overseas. Here it is in our, back, in our own backyard where this issue has happened probably on purpose and it's kind of getting swept under the rug, so. 
Yeah, and it's kind of amazing how I, I can't, I still can't believe how long it's taking yeah. to fix it. 1,261 days. And so for you, do you live over here now when you're not doing, or do you live in Flint? Like, where do um, you? I, I stay here on the northeast side of Grand Rapids, okay. me and my wife, yes. Okay. Um, we are slowly making moves to uh, buy property in Flint, Michigan before okay. developers do. Okay. Um, just so we can have it and call it our own. Okay. So. So you're a little bit out of practice then, it sounds like. If you weren't doing this before Art Prize, you had to kind of be like, okay, yeah. this is, and, and it's probably a um, kind of a terrible reminder yeah. of what you were dealing with. Yeah, it, it kind of is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. So how are you, so how do you feel? You're how long, it's been how long? How many days that you've been in here now? Um, sheesh. Six nights, five days. Um, I started Tuesday night. Okay. Um, so going into Sunday, this will be week two, and then I got one more week left. Three cases of uh, water left, so got to make that stretch. Oh man! So are you rationing things then? I mean, yeah. just in keeping track of yep. how much you're drinking, how much you're. Yep. Oh my gosh! And this heat—you probably didn't factor this heat in. I didn't know it was coming, so I mean, thanks, Lord, for testing me. You know, and I mean, it's really making the narrative more clear to people who show up and see it that. Um, you know, my thing is that I don't want to get donations or ask for donations from anyone for water because, you know, the, the opportunity for water sites to be shut down in Flint, Michigan is happening and people are going without water. And right. that's happening. So what do you hope people take away from this? What's the, the one thing you really want them to understand? Um, that this is a real problem and it's not going away and um, that we as a people can have a voice to stand up and to change it. So. And, and here artists are taking the lead. Yeah. So, Nice work on Culture that. Culture Collective, yes. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. If you want to go and see his exhibit and check out a few others in the area, you can find him at 333 Rumsey Street Southwest, and that's in Grand Rapids as part of Art Prize 2017. And if you want to circle back and see T. Rock Moore's piece, she's at Fountain Street Church. There are several other really good pieces at her venue as well. The church does a great job of curating a really powerful collection that is, they always are tackling big issues, important issues, uh, social justice, and just some very intense topics uh, ranging from racism, genocide, and um, human trafficking. I mean, it's not a, a situation where you walk in and it's just light, flowery type of artwork. It's artwork that will will confront you with some some hard truth and that is important so thanks for tuning in i'm gonna sign off now because i have a backlog of interviews that i've recorded now with art prize artists i would love to do this like every day and just interview artists all day long i wish i had the ability to freeze time and just go around and interview a bunch of people and then be able to sprinkle these out like faster than I am right now. I also want to thank my Patreon sponsors for continuing to show your support for what I'm trying to do here. I appreciate that so much. And thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate that. So uh, I will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at craftsanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at craftsanity.etsy.com. Same time next week.